This is the Truth Warrior Podcast with your host, David Whitehead. Far more to this world than taught in our schools, shown in the media, or proclaimed by the church and the state. Most of mankind lives in a hypnotic trance, taking to be reality what is instead a twisted simulacrum of reality, a collective dream in which values are inverted, lies are taken as truth, and tyranny is accepted as security. They enjoy their ignorance and cling tightly to the misery that gives them identity. Fortunately, some are born with spiritual immune systems that sooner or later give rejection to the illusory worldview grafted upon them from birth through social conditioning. They begin sensing that something is amiss and start looking for answers. Inner knowledge and anomalous outer experiences show them a side of reality others are oblivious to, and so begins their journey of awakening. Each step of the journey is made by following the heart instead of following the crowd and by choosing knowledge over ignorance. Knowledge is the key to unlocking our potential. It gives us the self-determination, responsibility, and power necessary to cast off the chains of covert oppression. Knowledge is therefore the greatest protector, for it also gives us foresight to impeccably handle the challenges of life and most importantly, to sidestep the traps on the path to awakening. The more you know of higher truths and apply what you know, the more you begin to operate under higher laws that transcend the limitations of the lower. Here you will find articles and resources that push the boundaries of fringe knowledge, steps to spiritual awakening, how your mind influences reality, deja vu and synchronicities, alien agendas and disinformation, nonlinear nature of time, hyperdimensional entities, the matrix and its agents, earth as an energy farm, probable cataclysmic futures, scalar physics and orgon therapy. And uh, welcome everybody to Truth Warrior. I'm so happy to be here. I was just reading from Tom Montauk's website and you gotta go and check it out, montauk.net. That's M-O-T-M-O-N-T-A-L-K.net. Um, Tom has been a researcher in this field covering so many different angles. He's so good at the big picture. I've been dying to get this interview put together for a few years now. Um, and following Tom on and off. And uh, I think he's just a great guy, does a really great job. And I'm so excited for this conversation. So check him out, montauk.net. And let me go ahead and bring the man in. And there he is, Tom. Amazing words. Uh, you've been doing such great work. I've wanted to pick your brain about these subjects for a long time. I'm so glad we finally got this done. Uh, thanks for joining me, man. Welcome to Truth Warrior. Yeah, sure thing. Glad to be on finally. Well, you had an interesting story to uh, tell me about the intro to your website uh, that you had some people trying to plagiarize it or something. You want to tell that story? Yeah, so on Facebook and pretty much all social media, there's this uh, this meme quote that's been going around. And it's the first one or two paragraphs of that intro that you just read to my website. And it was attributed to this uh, famous French philosopher, Henry Bergson. And, uh, you know, it's got his face right there. It's got his name under it. And it's got that quote. So it's misattributed to him. And it's been going around so much that I started getting messages and emails from people saying, I'm so disappointed in you. I can't believe that you'd be such a plagiarist to plagiarize this Henry Bergson guy. Um, anyway, I just thought that's funny. So a few of the people that uh, read my work, they've been do, doing, they've been fighting the good fight and trying to correct that misunderstanding. I just, I think it's funny, but. Oh, it is. And I mean, it's so funny how, you know, people run with these things, but either way, I mean, in the end, isn't it more important the words, right? Like. Uh, the, the whole concept of what you're breaking down is why I, I love having you here, you know, just talking about there's more to this world than we're taught. There's uh, so much going on. There's sort of a fake reality cast into our mind 
in so many different ways that then we then view reality through that distorted lens and we don't see the real we don't see the real things we don't see the truth as clearly as we might think we are and there are many forces i think at work that would take advantage of this process so before we get into some of the current events that are happening um maybe just give people that are new to your work a little background about yourself what got you into these subjects how long you've been doing it and some of the subjects that you tackle all right so i was born in germany in 1980 and uh, as a kid i had a lot of paranormal experiences including demonic entity encounters shadow people encounters ghosts um, and also alien abductions with the typical gray gray alien type beings and my mom she herself had it too so i think i got it from her genetically although there definitely seems to be a soul component as well in terms of who gets targeted for that sort of thing um, but yeah, so when I was like 12 or 13, I got a library card and I read all the UFO, all the metaphysics books at the local library. Uh, and I started subscribing to different UFO journals. And this was back in like 92, 93. So I've been at this for pretty much 30, 30 years now. Wow. And um, right around 98, that's when I launched my website. It wasn't called Montauk.net back then. It was on like some free website. It's kind of like GeoCities, those free websites I had back in the 90s. You can just sign up for a free website. So I was on there for a while and then eventually got my, my own website, Montauk.net. Um, but over the years, I've communicated now with probably 10,000, 12,000, probably about 15,000 people total, um, just through emails and chats and so on. And like a lot of them, they were um, experiencers as well, researchers. So they shared with me all their private data and I was connecting all these dots after after a while. So eventually, you know, the big picture just starts to coalesce, you know, because you start getting the big picture and then you, you come up with like a theory about what everything means. And then as you read more things, experience more things, you can test whether that theory was right or not. Right. Mm -hmm. So so it was kind of like this iterative process of this rapid prototyping to try to understand what's really going on here and trying to figure out a bigger picture that would explain pretty much everything. See, because the problem is, you know, a lot of people, they have a certain set of experiences and then they, they they base their viewpoint on that only and then they try to make everything else fit into that. So, right. you know, when data comes that, they, that doesn't fit it, they just rationalize it to themselves like why it's not true or why it's not acceptable. And then you kind of get stuck at this, this comfy level that isn't the best theory that you could have if you just kept on going. So I've tried to be as open-minded as I could be, um, but at the same time, I went to college for physics and electrical engineering. So I did, I did about four years of that. And the reason why I did that is because when I was reading all those UFO books when I was in junior high, I really wanted to know how these, these anti-gravity warp drives that they have work, you know? And so I started researching all these suppressed inventions back in the 90s. Um, Rex Research, they used to advertise in the back of Popular Science Magazine. And so when you get their catalog, well, back then, you can get their catalog, and it's like all these different suppressed inventions over the past one, 200 years. So I was ordering all their info packets and just reading them over and over and over again, trying to understand alternative, you know, like fringe physics. So I went to college to learn how to build it, how to understand it. And then eventually, you know, when you, when you get, once you, once you start getting into grad school, um, they specialize you so much that you lose sight of the bigger picture. So that's why I left college, because I, I worked with grad students when I worked in the plasma physics lab, and I saw how miserable they were, and I saw how many political hoops they had to jump through in order to even maintain their job. I mean, let alone trying to get funding from the government for your projects. Right, yeah. You have to toe the line. I mean, you have to stay within. You can't color outside the lines when you do that, because it just takes one 
one big mistake and all of a sudden, you know, you, you lose your credibility, you lose your funding, and then you're delivering pizzas with a PhD. It, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Exactly. So I, no. I, di I didn't want to risk it. So I just did web and graphic design on my own while studying physics on the side afterwards. So I, I've continued my science education since then. And I've been doing so many experiments um, and just, just kind of probing reality as, as best as I can. So that's what kind of brought me here. Um, so everything, the science side, my paranormal experiences as a kid, and then interacting with uh, 15,000 people over the years. Wow, an incredible story, man. And I had no idea that you'd had those uh, personal experiences growing up. Um, I've spoken to many people who've had similar, uh, I've done this work for a long time as well. And the whole fringe paranormal world was one of my first loves. It was my first interests. Uh, alongside getting into ancient uh, history, comparative religion, mythology. Those were sort of where I uh, started. And then I didn't even realize that eventually all the study of like ufology and fringe paranormal subjects would dovetail into the study of the ancient myths and legends and, and how well it worked and trying to get that big perspective of, you know, what's the truth about our history? What's the truth about our origins? You know, what's the purpose and meaning of life? Why are we here? And then where are we? What is this place? What's going on? Who runs it? What's happening that we're not aware of? And it just keeps going from there. And um, that's why I love diving into these subjects and, uh, and getting into the research. I love that you have also the scientific background so that you're, you're trying to you know, use the holistic approach to looking at it. You have the intuitive side, you have the experiential, but then the data gathering you know, sort of approach is really important. What would you say is where you're at right now would be the big picture. I know this is a, these are huge questions and we can just mm -hmm. sort of pick it apart a bit here, but um, there's a quote that I've been referencing a lot. I put it in my uh, documentary series, Cult of the Medics. I'm gonna be diving into it in the later chapters of that series, but it comes from Charles Fort. I'm sure you've heard of it, where he's describing his theory after all his years of looking into these paranormal subjects, where he's basically saying, uh, I've come to the conclusion that I think we're property I think that uh, this earth has had uh, claimants lay uh, ownership on the earth and they've warned all others off and they've left, you know, sort of a managerial staff in charge of managing the human farm and all of this. And it, it's pretty stomach turning when you think about that in the beginning and you watch movies like The Matrix, you know, and, and all these other films that sort of talk about these themes. And then you start to look at the way this world is run and the people that are running it and how anti-human some of these agendas seem to be. And you start to wonder, was Charles Fort onto something? Um, and so, you know, if I were to just say, Tom, how do we break down the big picture of the control structures in our world uh, and what's really happening to us humans and, and who's doing it? How would we even begin to tackle that question? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question because ultimately it comes down to what is reality? What are we actually in? Like, what is this place? And you know, I, th I think one of the in order to tackle that question, you have to find um, you have to find a crack in the wall of the illusion in order to to start warming, you know, getting yourself in there and seeing what's beyond it. And I think one of the easiest cracks to look at would be synchronicity, because mm -hmm. a lot of people, I mean, it's something that a lot of people have. You know, it's a personal experience that people can have. See, like a lot of people might not be alien abductees; they might not have ever experienced ghosts or demons or anything like really crazy like that. But they might have had synchronicities over and over again in life, enough to where they can be convinced that reality cannot be what the mainstream consensus says it is, which is that it's simply a mechanical universe that is separate from our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that, that particular viewpoint, that reality is just this machine 
um, that we're in and that consciousness is this emergent property of matter that is rooted in like mid 1800s science it's not even caught up yet to, to quantum physics from the early 1900s right, which yeah. de which definitively well i would say i mean personally i would say it definitively proved that consciousness and matter are fundamentally intertwined that everything ultimately arises out of consciousness so if, if these if these if the mainstream consensus viewpoint even caught up to that then they wouldn't be saying what they're saying you know which is that this is we're just living in this cold you know universal mechanical machine um but one thing you realize with synchronicity though is that for it for synchronicity to happen it has to involve some intelligence that transcends space-time so it has to work itself from beyond beyond space-time and behind space-time almost like um the person who works the the projection booth in a theater you know you don't see this person when you're looking at the movie but there's a person there controlling what's on the screen essentially and so there's this intelligence that is beyond space-time that can arrange events here uh, in order to give you a meaningful synchronicity. So a, a synchronicity is simply a meaningful coincidence that's just way too coincidental and way too meaningful for it to be just pure, sheer accident, okay? Because, you know, we people do talk about confirmation bias. Like, let's say you're into the topic of dolphins, and all of a sudden, you know, when a dolphin comes up in the news or somewhere it'll catch your attention because you've already been thinking about it. And so that's confirmation bias because you're just seeking it out already, you know, perhaps even subconsciously. But a lot of synchronicities aren't like that because a lot of synchronicities can happen, let's say three, four of them together in a very short period of time in, in things that wouldn't even naturally occur on their own. Let's say on a receipt, right? You've got one meaningful number on there, another meaningful number, and then a meaningful name. And each of those things, it might be only be like one in 1,000 chance. So multiply all those together, that's already like 10,000, 100,000, you know, probability of it, of it happening. Um, and so a lot of synchronicities are not simply confirmation bias. And so once you accept that, then you start wondering, okay, so what is it that's causing it? And as I just mentioned, it has to be some sort of intelligence that's beyond space-time. And then it gets even weirder because a lot of these synchronicities, they have meanings that are very, very similar, both in how they appear and what they mean to the symbols that we get in dreams from our own subconscious. Right. So, yeah. dream, so dream symbols on the one hand, and synchronicities in the waking world, they both happen almost through like a similar mechanism in a similar way. And, you know, that's pretty astounding if you think about it, because it makes you realize that what if waking reality is indeed more of a collective dream than it is something that's separate from our own dreams? You know, what if when we're dreaming, it's almost like, um, it's like when you're playing a computer game offline, you know, you're just in your own virtual world, you got your little character in there, and you're doing whatever. And then when you wake up, it's like plugging back into the network. So now you're on a multiplayer, massive multiplayer online game. So now you're interacting with other computers out there, other players, and we're, you're all being coordinated together by the central server. You know, so it's like waking reality could be a, a sort of a dream state that is being collectively synchronized together by something. And that something cannot be just our own mind and our own subconscious because obviously things here are way more persistent like if this is an illusion mm -hmm. then things are way more persistent than they would be in dreams now i've had dreams that were incredibly persistent like i even became lucid and i thought okay I i'm dreaming right now i can obviously push myself through this wall right. and i couldn't i couldn't i was like pounding on it i couldn't even get through it it felt as solid as it would in real life and that was just my own subconscious doing it unless i was in a parallel reality but i think i was in a dream at the time um but the, but the point is that in waking life there is something like a subconscious that is projecting this. Um, 
but it's way more powerful than just our own subconscious. So it could be perhaps a collective subconscious, or it could be an independent uh, universal kind of mind. And actually that ties into a lot of the Hindu mythology, because Hindu, Hinduism, they talk about the Atman, which is like our own internal sentient like point of consciousness, and then the Brahman, the Brahman, which is uh, the ineffable consciousness that projects all of existence, you know, like the, the mind of God, you could say. And the Greeks would call that, for example, they would call it, call it partly the Logos, and they would partly call it the Demiurge. So I think the philosophical and occult and Greek concept of the Demiurge is, I think, the closest thing, the closest term that we have to some sort of a, a collective higher mind or subconscious that projects this, this, this you know, reality as we know it. Okay? So if you accept that premise, that reality is essentially an illusion that's being held together by a higher kind of matrix mainframe, I guess you could say, then it does make you wonder about non-playable characters, NPCs. You know, are there beings here that aren't truly sentient, but they're just products of this collective dream or this simulation, if you want to call it that? Uh, and do these characters have perhaps uh, a self-preservation instinct programmed into them? And if they do, what if they need to feed off our energy in order to sustain themselves because they themselves are not necessarily plugged into this transcendent, even higher source that keeps us alive and makes us sentient and makes us be able to express our will. You know, and so that then gets into the idea of um, the matrix as an energy farm in the sense that there could be beings here who for whatever reason chose not to honor the spiritual sovereignty of other beings, whether it's other beings like themselves or other beings that, um, let's say, they are the real players of the game, while these things themselves are merely just, you know, the NPCs, the non-playable characters. So, you know, what, what, if, what if there are certain alien factions, what we think are ETs, who are really essentially products of this collective dream? Like, you know, when you have a dream, right, a lot of the characters that are in there are just figments of your own subconscious, right? They're not necessarily you. They're, they seem independent, but they're not. They're thoughts. They don't... If you were psychic, for example, a lot of psychic people, they can see auras, they can see energy fields. And I've heard from many psychics that if you're in a dream and you try to read the energy field of a dream character, it's going to come up as empty or, bl or blank because it's not a real independent person. Whereas if, if they were awake reading someone, then of course they would feel an energy field. And actually, I remember reading in the Carlos Castaneda books that same idea that when you're dreaming, you can tell what's real in there versus merely a figment of your thought by what has energy and what doesn't have energy. And so... I think in waking life as well, I think there are beings that don't necessarily have as much of their own independent energy as we do. And then perhaps that is why they need to feed off of living beings, because they're trying to, to sustain their own existence. Now, in order for them to do that, though, uh, it takes a huge operation because it's kind of like in the Matrix movie where the machines were feeding off the thermal energy of humans. They're feeding off our you know, body thermal energy combined with a form of fusion, and that's how they power their machines. Well, obviously, that's a Hollywood metaphor for what it really is. And I think, actually, in the original script of The Matrix, I think the machines were feeding off the life force energy of humans. But the producer said, like, that's, like, way too beyond what the audience can handle, so let's just make it, you know, fusion energy combined with thermal energy. So, so I, think, I think that the Wachowskis, or whoever actually wrote the script, knew what they were talking about. They knew that there was a parallel in real life to entities that, that feed off our energy. So and the reason, but the reason why I mention this, though, is because in order for them to do that, it takes a huge operation. Because in the Matrix movie, um, people, you know, they had their own minds, they had their own free will, relatively speaking. But 
the the system had to sustain that and it's very difficult to juggle that many independent minds to program them into this hypnotic sleep state where they would you know just go about their lives nine to five not rock the boat and just keep the system going producing this energy and so likewise on planet earth that's how it's been for thousands of years where people have been hypnotized by culture religion politics you know all these different belief systems and just the the, the horrible lifestyle that modernity and entails nowadays um but and I so think, much of, of those ideas and beliefs form those thought patterns that then become the view, the worldview of that person. And in so doing, if all these people have that distorted, manipulated worldview, it's that collective consciousness that ends up creating uh, an illusory world that's wrapped on top of possibly a more, more real, more factual based world, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, because what we what we seem to be in, as I mentioned, is uh, it's a it's a combination of simulation and collective dream. Those two things together, I think, explain the majority of the phenomena that that are happening, including synchronicities, including a lot of paranormal activities, including uh, the whole New Age idea of manifesting, like using your your wishes and your intentions to <clears throat> to manipulate reality to kind of get what you want. Yeah, I mean, these things, or even like the whole occultic field of magic like manipulating reality, using your will, using sigils, things like that. Um, it shows that reality is responsive to our consciousness, but not necessarily our surface consciousness, but more our subconscious, you know, the, the right. part, the part of us that's beneath the surface, because it's kind of like, it's kind of like a forest where you've got two trees and on the surface, they look like they're not connected, but underground, the roots might actually be intertwining. Okay. So you have to go beneath the surface in order to, to connect with the, uh, the network that kind of connects everything together. And so that's what the subconscious does. It, I think it ties into that concept I mentioned of the demiurge, which is like a collective subconscious. You know, the same way that uh, a river or a stream feeds into the ocean. You know, it's all water, it's all connected, but you know, one is just like a, a, separate, a separate extension or uh, port, portway into it. Um, yeah, so if, if they have some sort of a energy farming operation going on here, I do think, on the other hand, that it all seems to be coming to a head. And the reason why I say that is because we're approaching so many different singularities. And I'll get into that, you know, in, in a few minutes. Sure. But, we're, but we're approaching many different synchronicity or uh, singularities that threaten to undo their control system. You know, people are getting a bit too aware. We're getting too technological. You know, we're, we're amassing too much power. And that allows us eventually to jump the fence of the farm, so to speak. And so they're worried about it. So they need to lock this place down before that happens. And so I think that's why pretty much all geopolitical uh, alien disclosure type things are happening now, uh, moving towards their own singularities in order to essentially prevent us from reaching that point of um, uncontrollability. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a big picture. So many things in there. And um, I've got sort of my take on some of it, but help me out with this question that I've been asking lately if you would, on the idea of dimensions and interdimensional mm -hmm. beings and all of this. And I'll just give you a little bit of where I'm thinking here. I've done a lot of uh, research also into psychology and getting into, uh, you know, especially over the past few years, mass psychology and how they, they're able to induce this sort of state of mass formation and whatnot and guide human consciousness. And it seems like there is uh, something very valuable about our consciousness, even though not one individual can completely manipulate all of reality. Um, there is an influential aspect in a relationship between our own unique consciousness and this reality for sure. But um, there's also a mechanism in the human mind where 
uh, it edits out anything that's traumatic in many ways, right? If you study abuse victims or, you know, there's even, um, say, rape victims or people that have suffered deep, deep trauma, their memory will become masked with preferred narratives to ease the trauma of the experience. Meanwhile, the true nature of the experience is sort of obscured, uh, almost like a firewall situation. And I guess understanding the dynamics of how that works, you, you wonder if some of the explanations that people try to give for this phenomena, that's very hard to explain from anybody of these other entities or any of these things they're interacting with, um, and especially related to the ET question, people tend to go immediately to, oh, there's no such thing as uh, any kind of physical beings here that are visiting. They're all spiritual or interdimensional. And while that might be the case, uh, I feel like in a way I look at it from a phenomenological perspective of my own experience where I am here. I have a physicality. I have a reality. Um, and, and I also have a dimensional side where it's in my, like you're saying, the dreams, the imagination, the creative parts of myself. So we're all interdimensional if that's the sort of loose definition we want to use. But I'd love your take on that. Um, do you see these beings interfacing with us here in our reality as purely one or the other, meaning one meaning they're all spiritual, interdimensional, and I'd love your take on what you think that would be. Or is there also a physical component, very real in the same that we have a physical component, and maybe those aren't two separate realities. Maybe that is just the reality that we're slowly learning more about. And by learning about these multidimensional concepts that we're trying to define, we're actually learning a lot about our own innate interdimensional nature but i guess I, I some part of me has a problem with the interdimensional thing and the dimensions because i'm a student of people like walter russell and alvin boy kuhn and some of the more hermetic traditions um who looked at reality as like say for Schelling, for example uh, one of the great german mystics he said um nature so reality is visible spirit and spirit is invisible nature so the way he's describing it is that there's ends of the spectrum but they're not separate. There's a relationship. It's just all a matter of perspective. So I hope this is making sense, this question. I'm sure you saw my thread. I was just, I'm just trying to grapple with everybody going, no, 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 there's no such thing as any kind of uh, people coming from other planets or anything like that. It's all this other out there. And I go, okay, define that. What is that? Define it. And Tom, to this day, I have not gotten an explanation that really clinches it for me. So I wonder what your opinion is and what you would say to that. Yeah, it's an important question because we are dealing with things that transcend consensus reality. And that's the issue is that people are dealing with things that are beyond their their box of understanding, right? And it freaks them out. And, you know, there's different ways that you can approach that when it happens to you. You can either expand your box to try to include it hmm. or, or you can um, hold firm to your box and essentially just ignore everything outside of it. And those are the two reactions that, that people tend, tend to fall into. Now, I mean, I mean, there is a good reason why the term interdimensional or ultra-terrestrial is used. See, because back in the day when people were trying to understand what aliens are, you know, what these UFOs and these spacemen were, people thought that, okay, they're extraterrestrial, which means that they're just space people more advanced than us who come here from other planets and spaceships. And let's say they come here to try to study humanity for their own scientific reasons. So that used to be what people believed, but over the years, as more and more data has been accumulated, it's become clear that these beings are way more than just so-called spacemen. I mean, for example, I mean, just the fact that 
you can see a UFO, you can watch it and it just winks out and it disappears from sight. Or it can start morphing shapes and splitting in two. Uh, and not just like lights, but actual like metallic crafts. It's almost like liquid mercury that, you know, kind of undulates and splits in two and then goes back together. Uh, that's not what a physical ship tends to do, right? It's, uh, it's, it's way beyond that. Um, and abductees have mentioned how aliens can walk through walls and levitate these abductees out through solid like closed windows. They can have, for example, ships that disappear into mountains as if there's some sort of a mountain base inside, but it goes through a solid wall. So they have the ability to phase, you know, they, uh, you can call it phasing, but to phase themselves through solid matter and phase abductees through solid matter, like through closed windows. Uh, my mom had an experience like that back in 93. Uh, we lived on a farmhouse right. in Iowa and she woke up one night, <clears throat> she woke up one night thinking that there were uh, police cars outside because there's like red and blue and white lights kind of flashing outside. Uh, and the next thing she knew, she was paralyzed and uh, a blue beam shone through the window and she noticed like two beings on like one on her left side and one on her right side and they levitated her out through this window. And then the next thing she knew, she it was like two hours later, uh, her eyes were open, she came to and, it, and her body was cold and it was like she hadn't even slept. Like she was like so wired on energy, it wasn't even funny. And so she just got up and like started cleaning the house because she was so energized. Uh, and the next next day, that's when she finally remembered this experience that she had right before that point. So yeah, I mean, she had that. She was taken out through a, a closed window, and I know other abductees have had that as well. So they can do that. Um, these ships have been seen going underwater at supersonic speeds. And as you know, water has so much resistance to it that you really can't do it. I mean, they have these underwater fast, like, uh, supersonic missiles that create this shock wave in front of them. But these UFOs, they don't have a shockwave. And actually, a lot of times, they're seen like taking off at 4,000 miles per hour through the, through the air without disturbing any of the trees around them, like no wind, no sound, no sonic boom. So that is really weird. You know, people started wondering, well, are they even physical? Or is it more like a, like a laser pointer? You know, a cat thinks a laser pointer dot is a, is a little bug or something that's running around that's physical, right. but it's not. It's an illusion. So no wonder, of course, that you can make the dot move this way and that way because it's just a projection. And so people thought, well, what if these crafts are actually um, fourth-dimensional projections into 3D? So we, you know, so maybe that's why they morph and split apart because we're seeing it merely from a three-dimensional slice of what's an actually a fourth-dimensional object. Some people started thinking, well, what if that's the case? But it could be that. It doesn't have to be that, but it could be that. Um, there's other things like if you're psychic or if you're intuitive or you've got pets or kids that are intuitive, they can sense when invisible entities are around. And, you know, they'll look up at the air, they'll start like swatting at it or barking at nothing. And you wonder like, what are they even looking at? But if you yourself are psychic or intuitive, you can, you can tell what they're looking at. Because if you turn on your second sight, your third eye, you can see, oh, it's a, a ghost or it's, um, oh, shoot, that's not even human. You know, you know what I mean? So plenty of those anecdotes exist out there. So clearly, you know, what we perceive as normal waking reality, that's like a tiny, tiny subset of what's really going on. I mean, we really are, even just perhaps metaphorically, uh, three-dimensional beings within a four-dimensional spatial continuum, you know, or, or like a square, like, like that book, uh, Flatland, A Romance of the Square. So, I, mean, I mean, that book that by that famous mathematician, he wrote a book about this, this little square that lives in, in a flatland world, and one day uh, a three-dimensional object comes in and lifts him out of it and shows him what the third dimension is like, and it blows mm -hmm. his mind. And then he goes back and he tries to tell everyone, but they didn't believe him. Same thing like nowadays, people get abducted and taken into these ships and they come back and 
you know, the, the general consensus doesn't believe them at all because it's something greater than consensus reality that is happening. So I know these, these weirdness things, uh, they call it the Oz factor, they call it high strangeness, Charles Fort, John Keel, yeah. Jacques Vallée, all these famous people, these famous researchers, that's what they were studying. And that's what led to um, Charles Fort concluding that perhaps we are, um, Chattel, we are property of uh, another intelligence. Because, you know, from everything that he saw, he saw that our world functioned more like a, more, more like a cage or more like a, like a little, like a farm um, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like a farm or a diorama or a terrarium or, you know, a, a ant farm, you know, I, I like that metaphor because that's sort of true. So it's, it's almost like we are like in a, in an alien ant farm to a degree. Cause I mean, if you want to get technical, it's our bodies that are in the ant farm, but our spirit is of course from beyond it. Right. You know, so we're, we're right. plugged into this thing here, but you know, for the duration of our lifetime, we seem to be stuck here. And that's the issue, but, you know, the, the fact that we are in a controlled environment, essentially. And so when, so when skeptics and scientists say that they want to scientifically study UFOs, it's kind of funny because they think that, that they're putting these UFOs and aliens in their Petri dish when it's actually these scientists who are in the Petri dish of the aliens. Interesting. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like you, yeah. you, can't, you can't do a scientific study of something that's beyond your very conception of reality. You can right. try, you can try, but, but then you'll be, you'll be uh, you know, flummoxed by, by things that just don't fit. And so, you know, that's why they can't necessarily explain why these things can take off so rapidly, why they can move through solid objects and disappear and morph and, and, and do all those strange things. And that's why some people have resorted to calling them interdimensional, you know, and, you know, but then the problem is a lot of people cannot handle the, the true nuance of what that implies. Mm. And so it's very easy then to merely say, Oh, Aliens are just demons. We've always known them to be demons or fairies or whatever, and that's what they are. So just classify it all as demons. That's all it is. And, you right. know, there's just, just demons putting on a new, new disguise. Like in the ancient days, demons were pretending to be, I don't know, fairies or uh, jinn or whatever. And then nowadays they put on the spacesuit like projection to, because, you know, we're, we're scientific people now. So they have to play to that scientific thing. The problem is a lot of the things that they exhibit are way beyond our conception of science. And so they're not necessarily fitting merely our cultural context. They have their own independent system of rules, technology, uh, abilities that is beyond what we can even understand. And in fact, if you study it enough, you can actually advance your own scientific understanding. Uh, you can actually expand it, which proves that whatever they're coming from, it's not just within our sphere of culture, it's beyond it. You know, there, there's an independent technological reality to it and you can study it and therefore you can expand your culture, your understanding to meet it because it's greater than yours. And that's precisely what, according to many alleged claims, the government, the military has done with crashed UFOs, studying their technology, uh, figuring out how they work and replicating it and being able to fly their own ships, uh, you know, anti-gravity ships similar to what these alien beings are doing. Um, which would yeah. imply that there is some kind of a technological side to it, like in, mm -hmm. in what we would call the 3D reality, like maybe there's an extended aspect of it that is interacting with the 3D that produces the effects of like the one thing I would say with some of these points, and these are great points, um, is that we can track these things on radar, mm -hmm. right? Which is our 3D technology that we're using to track these ships. So they're not just like ghost ships, right? There's right. something to it that's trackable and observable. There's the phenomena of multiple witness sightings, right? Where we're not just having some guy hallucinating on DMT or having like a waking dream, right? Which is usually the accusation of people that are 
having abduction experiences or mm -hmm. whatever is that it's all a psychological phenomena that's being uh, cast into the logical mind which makes them feel like it was a real experience when no it was just a dream right that's that's sort of the excuse that's given but i think there's extremes there i think that i look at it in a way that we also are looking at something that we don't understand and it could be that there's levels of technology that uh, we're only starting to get in with like quantum physics and epigenetics and some of these other fields to expand our view of what's potential in reality um, that we there might be an aspect of both to it is what I typically go where I say well we have this physical 3d side but as you said we are also we have this fourth what you could call fourth dimensional side um, and so whatever these things are whatever this is this phenomena it seems to be able to play in both worlds, whereas we're only stuck in the one world in terms of our tech. And the fact that there's even crashed UFOs, if that's the case, um, shows that they're not these spiritual, perfect uh, type of things only either. Like when you come from a sort of religious perspective, uh, there is a physical reality-based aspect to the phenomena that's also there with it. But I agree, the more you study this subject, the more you see this high strangeness that's just inexplicable but what's the old statement that, um, you know, magic is just technology yet to be understood in many ways. And mm -hmm. we are the ones trying to understand what's going on. And then as technology came into our, our lives, computers, internet, uh, we started developing technological language to describe reality. But, um, you know, prior, the religious mind would have said, oh, these are demonic realms and they're out, they're out there somewhere separate from our reality. But if we're talking about um, either extraterrestrial or interdimensional entities appearing and interacting with ancient minds, they're only trying to describe that phenomena through that cultural narrative and the best that the best thinking that they had at the time to describe what they're experiencing. And that's where you get, you know, Anunnaki and, and Nephilim and Raphaim and uh, demons and angels. But um, and I'm not saying there isn't that realm as well, but just in this context, it could be that it's not that the beings themselves are putting on spacesuits to pretend they're something they're not. It's that humanity's slowly evolving the way they can perceive things because mm -hmm. we now have technology as a way of talking about it. And so the names change. I, I made this point the other day. We even changed the name of UFO to UAP mm -hmm. within the last 10 years. We changed the name of extraterrestrial to EBE, you know, extra biological entity. Um, so the names we humans give this indefinable phenomena changes but the phenomena itself is what it is as you're saying independent from our perspective of it does that make sense oh totally yeah because see the thing is i, I believe that these beings have maintained a relatively it's like like the beings have maintained a steady a steady reality like they're in this reality through through time they've always had these abilities to have anti-gravity phase through objects disappear appear and mm -hmm. so on and human understanding has slowly, slowly started to approach more and more and more of the reality of what they actually are. Right. And so, so now we're at the level of, let's say, relativity and quantum physics. And using those, we can start to you know, better understand what they're doing. But they're not, we're, we're not quite there yet, because if you want to go beyond relativity and quantum physics, you actually have to go into the field of metaphysics and occultism and paranormal mm -hmm. studies. Because, for example, um, you asked earlier whether whether these beings, you know, obviously they're not just spiritual, like like non-physical, and they're not strictly physical either. There's something in between. Right. And so that's why in my book, uh, Discerning Alien Disinformation, 
I classify different alien types into different categories. And one of the big categories in there, I call them ambi-terrestrials, kind of like, uh, like amphibians, like the way frogs are both on land and in water, amphibious. Mm -hmm. I call them ambi-terrestrials because they're both physical and non-physical. They can kind of shift between the two states um, to limiting degrees, but they have access to both. And people wonder, okay, well, that sounds, about, that sounds kind of outlandish. Like, what do we even have that could approach that? And I say, well, look at our own bodies, for example. You have a physical body, but you've also got a non-physical body. You've got the soul, you've got the consciousness. And the proof of that is in near-death experiences, mm -hmm. out-of-body experiences, astral projection, uh, and those types of phenomena where clearly there is an energetic structure that is non-physical that is interfaced with the physical body. So in a sense, you could almost say that the physical body is like an avatar uh, uh, or a spacesuit for the soul, for consciousness. And so if we have both a physical component and a metaphysical component, what if you had beings or technologies that took advantage of that? Like, right. for example, like, like right now, all our technologies, you know, our phone, everything, that's physical. That's electrons, you know, silicon, metal, plastic. But what if you extended that into the same realm that um, we enter when we astral project or go out of body or have a near-death experience? What if you enhance that with what the mystics would call etheric energy or astral energy? Or just subtle energy. I mean, there's plenty of names for it. You know, there's prana, chi, orgone. We always get stuck in names, eh? And then people think you mean what you think. But it's so hard to put words to this. That's, mm -hmm. I think, where people struggle. And this is where I struggle. Sometimes when people just throw stuff out there like, oh, they're not aliens, they're interdimensional. Or no, they're not aliens, they're demons. Or this. I'm like, right. you're giving me an either or. We're using words to describe a thing that we're trying to understand. And we get lost often mm -hmm. in those words and maybe lose the thing in our description of the thing. What's that old Descartes saying when he's like, if you name me, you negate me. Like the moment you mm -hmm. try to pin it down is when you've already lost the plot. This is the difficulty we face, eh? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, usually when you're confronted with is something one thing or another, the, the answer tends mm -hmm. to be a bit of both, you know, right. or beyond yeah. that, right? It's not, it's not A or B, it's the, the third option that's between and beyond both of them, you know, the, the transcendent option. And, you know, people are given to taking the, the intellectual shortcut of, of, mm -hmm. of binary thinking. You know, it's either one thing or another. And we see that all the time in religion and politics, where yeah. it's like, if you, if you don't agree with that thing, then obviously, obviously you're part of the other camp, even right. though you might, might be a political independent that doesn't even believe in the other side, right? So there's always this, this two-sided, uh, I don't know. I mean, the whole binary thinking thing kind of amazes me because even, even uh, a bacteria thinks in the same way like like there's food there's not food i'm gonna go in that direction or this is warm that's cold i'm gonna go towards warmth it's like that's binary thinking so here we are with like trillions of neurons in our brain and what we're still thinking in a binary way you know i think i think we're yet we that. have the potential to not think binary there are great thinkers and that's what we call genius thinkers the guys that can zoom out of that binary thinking so the capacity that's unique to humanity out of all the species to what we know anyways yeah. Um, is unique in that ability that we can look upon ourselves. We can we can observe our own thinking. Like we can make a statement like that, Tom. We can say, "Hey, we think binary." Like just that ability to mm -hmm. to say that implies that we're aware that there's the potential for a a, a sort of more elevated way of thinking. Right. I find that interesting. Yeah, I mean the whole idea of meta uh, metacognition, being mm -hmm. able to think about your thoughts. That, that in itself is an error correction mechanism that you just don't find in animals. You know, animals, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much most animals, they, they're aware, obviously, they're sentient, 
but they're not necessarily that self-aware to kind of abstractly think about their own thoughts and to think whether that makes sense and whether that's even true and to kind of ponder the higher philosophical questions about reality. So we can do that, and that's why we're not still in the jungles. You know, that's why we're talking on high-tech computers right now, because that's what it took. You know, it took the ability just to see beyond your limitations and then go for it, you know, transcend your limitations. Uh, so we're, you know, we're on an upward trajectory, and that's why I said earlier that these controllers of this farm are, are getting kind of concerned. If they need to nip this all in the bud and kind of lock us down before we slip out of their grasp. So I think that's why a lot of it's happening. But kind of getting back to the question of, like, what does interdimensional even mean? Hmm. Now, I thought about this because you, you mentioned that you were going to, well, actually, I saw your thread on Twitter asking about that. So I, I was thinking about it quite a bit before the show. And I realized uh, one of the good ways to approach that is to kind of break down, like, what does the term dimension even mean? Oh, please. Right? Yeah, let's do it. Right. So, like, mathematically, a dimension is simply an axis of movement or a degree of freedom. You know, so so X, Y, Z, I mean, that's like forward, backward, left, right, up, down. You know, that's those are the directions that we can go. Uh, and then also time, in a sense, is a direction, but we seem to only be able to move in one direction, like forward. All right, so those are, you know, quote, unquote, dimensions in, a, in an abstract mathematical sense. But obviously, there's more than just those dimensions, because think about it, like, if you're in this universe, like this timeline right now, what if you switched to a parallel timeline? That's not distance in XYZ. That's not even distance in a, in a time sense going forward and backwards in time. It's like a sideways time kind of thing. And so that points to the existence of an additional dimension beyond just the, the three spatial and the one linear time that we have. So it's got to be some sort of a, a secondary time dimension, I guess you could say, that switches between timelines. So that's one example. Another example of a dimension that's not included in the conventional sense is whether you're in a waking state or in a dreaming state or let's say in a hypnotic state, those are states of consciousness. And so when you're in a dream and you wake up and now you're in this reality, you can't, you can't say, oh, how far away is that other dream? Like how many miles? You can't say that because it's not even compatible. You can't use spatial uh, things to relate them. So that's an, that's an additional dimension of, I don't know, I guess you could say it, uh, just a state or degree of consciousness, right? So that's another dimension. Um, and then likewise, you have another one where is, are you in this realm, this physical realm here, or are you in another realm completely, let's say where people go after they die, the afterlife state. Let's say likewise, that's also a different kind of thing. And I'll just mention as a side note, the way that I perceive it is, is like this. When you're switching between a dream state and the waking state, you're changing states of consciousness within your own psyche. So your consciousness, you're changing states within it from like waking to dreaming to being plugged into this collective reality towards just, you know, being offline in your own little dream reality. Right. But if you're going from here, this physical reality to another realm, let's say where the aliens are where, or the afterlife state, I'm not saying those two are the same, those are different, but some other realm, you're switching states of consciousness, not your consciousness, but you're switching consciousness of the universal mind that projects all of existence. Right. So one is just changing states within yourself. The other one is you're changing states within the, the demiurge, you know, within the, the universal consciousness. So you're switching from like one reality to another reality. But those are like essentially different dream states within the collective dream, you know, within reality as a whole. But the whole point being that obviously there's more dimensions than just X, Y, Z and T. You know, there are also states of consciousness, both within, within yourself, within re collective reality and, um, you know, and whether you're in this timeline or not. Now, 
when people nowadays use the term dimension, especially in the new age or fringe field, I mean, typically they're just talking about um, another realm or another environment. So when an alien disappears and goes back to wherever they come from, they're going to another realm. But, you know, people don't say realm, they say dimension. But really what they mean is another plane of existence. Right. And so then you wonder, okay, well, what's the relation then between that, like them calling them that, and just the idea of an actual like degree of freedom or axis of movement. And the relation is as simple as if you think about, um, well, like, uh, like the different floors of a building, you know, if, if, if you go vertically, if you go in the Z axis, you know, you can go, let's say to the 10th floor and that is its own environment. Like someone lives there, they've got their own furniture, their own life. You go down one level to, to the next floor, a whole different person, different environment and so on. But all those different realms are, uh, delineated by the, the Z axis of height, right? So when we talk about these other realms, yes, they are their own environment. You could call them another dimension, but essentially it's just a movement along a particular mathematical dimension, you know, or a different state of consciousness, either within yourself or within the collective dream, you know, so it's some sort of an axis between you here and them there. There's an axis between the two, whatever it is, and they're there and you're here. So, you know, essentially people aren't wrong to say that these entities are moving into another dimension when they disappear. Um, but for the most part, they just mean another realm environment that's separated from ours by along a certain, you know, axis that we might not fully understand. Right. Um, so they're displaced from our reality along some axis, and it could be it could be the fourth spatial dimension if there is one. It could be let's say a time displacement. Like for all we know, their realm, whatever they are in, is displaced from ours by five seconds. Hmm. You know. So if you, had, if you had a time machine and you could somehow desynchronize yourself from your present moment slightly into the future, then now you would be in a different realm. And actually, Stephen King's short story, uh, The Langoliers, uh, it's about an airplane that lands and now there's no one there and there's these weird munching creatures in the distance that kept coming closer and closer. Well, the plane went through a time portal and got shifted through time, just, just slightly out of phase with time. And so the realm that they were in was in the process of being eaten by these things that eat time itself. So it was this, you know, interesting story that is the only one that I know that touches on that concept of a time shift leading to a different realm. Uh, what else is there? Oh, very important. So in quantum physics, in quantum physics, uh, when they talk about this thing called the wave function, what they're referring to is they're, they're referring to a bundle, like a bundle of probabilities that describes the particular system that you're looking at. So whether you're measuring an electron, an atom, or the famous Schrodinger's cat, like the cat in the box, that's both alive and dead. Well, that, that thing, when you call it a wave function, you're looking at it as a, as a nebulous cloud of probability. It's not reality yet. And it's only when you measure it or observe it that it kind of collapses into the solid reality that we typically know, like only one cat that's only dead or alive, or an electron that's only in this state or that state. That's, that's what happens when you observe it. But when you're not observing it, it exists in this amorphous cloud of both at the same time, so it's this bundle. But Richard Feynman, the very famous physicist, he came up with a different idea of it, and he called it the Feynman path integral theory of quantum physics. And what that is, you interpret this bundle of probabilities as the sum total of different histories, like different um, timelines that a particle can take or different states that something can be in. And um, each one of those pathways has a certain index assigned to it, and they call it quantum phase. So for example, um, between a point A and a point B, 
a particle can go from here to here through the direct way, through a little bit indirect way, through even more indirect way, through like a little curly cue, to the other side of the universe, come back to point B. And all of those different possibilities make up the wave function of this particle about how it can go from here to here. But each one of those paths has a, a number associated with it. It's almost like numbers, like page numbers in a book. So imagine if you mm -hmm. took um, a different possibility, like possibility A of how it can go from one path, another possibility, another possibility, and you stack them like pages in a book. Well, each one of those has a different page number. And that page number is what they call a quantum phase. Now, quantum phase, if you had the power, whether to psychically or technologically change your quantum phase right now, what that would do is it would switch you to a parallel timeline or to a less probable state of reality. So the version of you that you are right now is the most probable form of reality, and that's like quantum phase, let's say, zero. But um, if you changed it just slightly, you wouldn't be that anymore. You'd be something different, and perhaps then you would fade out from my sight. I wouldn't be able to see you anymore. Maybe you're still physically there. But I wouldn't be able to see you anymore because now you're only 50% in my reality. And if you, kept on, if you kept on changing your phase more and more and more, perhaps you'd be totally gone. And then if you kept on changing it, eventually you would wind up in another bundle of different timelines that constitutes a different reality. So you could be switching then to an entirely different realm just by changing your quantum phase from this radio station that we're in right now to a different radio station. Because right. in, between, in between radio stations, you have like static, you know, there's nothing there. So it's like this no man's land. And, you know, so you can change your phase from here, start fading out, become more invisible. You're in this no man's land. All of a sudden you start fading in more and more into another real reality where other beings live or maybe a parallel human civilization or a parallel earth where humans don't even exist and instead reptilians you know evolved into humanoids and yeah, maybe that's right. where that's maybe that's where reptilian aliens come from for all we know so quantum phase is also another type of dimension that isn't really taken into consideration when discussing xyz and the t dimension right so the point being that dimension is a very complicated topic because you can change oh, yeah. all these different variables you know you can move thousand miles in this direction, you can go forward and backward in time, you can switch between parallel timelines, change your quantum phase, um, go between different states of the universal mind, you could say. Um, and those are the things that you would have to take into consideration when trying to tackle a lot of this high strangeness to do with paranormal entities, uh, you know, even even our own own existence in terms of reincarnation, like where do we go in between lifetimes if we reincarnate? Like what is this afterlife state? It's not here. It's something outside of here. And likewise, you know, that is also uh, a different kind of realm, um, you know, and that's why people would call it a different dimension. Now, typically when people say that a being appears or disappears, what they're saying is that they can no longer see it. It's become invisible. Hmm. And I think it's sort of important for people to understand that when it comes to invisibility, there's all different kinds of invisibility. I mean, there's optical invisibility where you're totally there, but you're just kind of bending light around yourself and so by the time the light reaches my eyes it's back to what it would have been if you hadn't even been standing there to begin with you know so that's optical invisibility and nowadays scientists you know you can do that through um metamaterials like so if you have like a metamaterial cloak and you put this cloak around yourself it's so good at bending light that the light literally comes from behind you bends around and then shoots forward and then it kind of it's as if you weren't even there you know like visually to me but of course you would be there because i could walk up to you and take the cloak off and you know there you would be Right. So that's optical invisibility. Um, but then, of course, there's also psychological invisibility where a camera can pick you up, motion sensors can pick you up, but the person is not cognitively registering that you're there or a particular object, you know, like 
how many times have I looked in the fridge for the ketchup bottle and I don't see the ketchup <laughs> bottle? It's right in front of my face. And the reason yep. I don't, the reason I don't see it is because it's mostly empty and I'm looking for the color red. You know, so my eyes are mm. scanning for red. I don't see it because I, I mean, ketchup is red, right? So you're looking for red, but it's not there. So, and I tell myself, okay, I know I'm looking at it right now, but I don't see it. But then I shuffle around. Okay, there it is. Finally, it was in front of my eyes the entire time. Well, if that can happen to a ketchup bottle, could it happen to an alien, for example? Could they be so good at somehow manipulating my mind, you know, psychologically or through some sort of hypnotic technique or, you know, technologically that I don't see them there? It's possible. Well, and if anybody thinks that's crazy, hypnotists do this for a living, don't they? You know, I've, I've done it as an experiment where I went onto a stage hypnotist uh, production unwillingly, like meaning I wasn't going to go, I'm going to resist this and it didn't work. And then I went once willingly and it totally worked. And they had me thinking I was at a rodeo and you know, you're eating a, an apple thinking it's an onion or you're eating an onion think it's an apple. So just that ability to play the tricks. And then what do magicians do? What do stage magicians like David Blaine and you know, all these guys, what do they do? Are they actually doing real magic of phasing things in and out of dimensions or are they really, really, really good at those optical deceptions, right? It makes right. you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although I will say on that, that if you were someone who did have real abilities, uh, you wouldn't be allowed by higher forces to demonstrate them to just anyone. Mm. But, you know, our, our reality, our consensus reality seems to be uh, censored to a large degree to where <clears throat> there are limits to what you can show the public and convince, you know, general humanity. So if you're at a private party, sure, you can bend spoons to each other. You can do all these cool like paranormal tricks. But if you try to capture it on film over and over again or demonstrate it to a, a huge scientific team that would change the entire history of human civilization, you'd probably be blocked in some way. And you might be blocked without you even knowing it. Like maybe just one day you wake up and you don't feel like doing it anymore and then you don't. Problem solved. You know, mm -hmm. human history doesn't change. Um, but if you but if you have that ability, another way to get it out there would be to be a street magician or to be some sort of an illusionist, because then it's under the plausible deniability cover of oh, it's just an illusion. So you could you right. Might so be, maybe some of these guys yeah. are legit. You know, they're working with some real magic. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? But but the same thing goes for these alien beings. I mean, they have technology and they demonstrate that they have technology in very uh, frightening ways. Some would call it. Um, but still, there's proof, but there's not enough proof to convince all of humanity right now. And that that level of proof, I think, is being very carefully controlled. You know, it's and and you, and you notice that that the level of proof is increasing over time. So it's you know it's like the temperature is being slowly adjusted up, more and more proof, more and more disclosure, until eventually most of humanity believes it, and then it won't be such a big shock when they do finally show up. So I do think there's some sort of management going on of of our perceptions and our beliefs, and it's not strictly just um, yeah, it's it's not not strictly just the fact that psychics don't exist or aliens don't exist. No, they do exist, but the proof isn't allowed to be out there as much as we currently want. You know, there's some sort of control like to it. Dripped it, it's getting dripped out. Um, what's your opinion on two things? The idea of genetic firewall, meaning our perception has been manipulated at the genetic level to block us off from our natural organic uh, perceptible abilities. That's one theory possibly the whole idea of like Lloyd Pye and genetic intervention and getting into sort of the ancient concept. Um, we see all the stuff with transhumanism going on. We see some of these freaky DARPA programs. We see all these, you know, all these jabs, these experimental jabs that are jabbing into people and all these things. So you wonder, is there, um, is there something happening where 
we are purposely being firewalled off maybe until we're ready or is that part of a more nefarious agenda? So that'd be kind of one question. Actually, let's just go with that first because I don't mm -hmm. want to throw too much at you. Let's just start with that. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both as usual, right? It's a bit of both because, <clears throat> because see, here's the thing. Um, people call this world an energy farm or a prison, but at the same time, you know, it's also a school. It's also a gym for the soul. So it's kind of both. It's not like we don't get anything out of this experience, despite all the pain, all the suffering. We, we do. See, some people say that this world is about lessons, like we're here to learn lessons. And I think that's only partially true, because if you want to just learn lessons, you could easily stay back up in the afterlife state and look down upon the living humans, see how their life goes, maybe read their Akashic records or whatever you want to call it. And you can learn from their life vicariously. You don't actually have to come here to learn what they're learning because you can just see it, right? You can learn it intellectually. So, but what is it that you cannot do simply vicariously? And that is to experience, um, to grow, to test yourself, and um, to grow as a result of experience. So it's same thing with exercise, right? You can look at someone, you can learn how to do an exercise, but if you actually want to you know, build yourself up, you got to go into the gym and, and lift the actual weights to yourself. Right. Yeah. And that's not, I mean, you can't substitute that any other way. You have to do it yourself. And so I think that's one reason why we come here is to put ourselves to the test. Um, and through the friction and the exposure that we have to challenges and suffering, both internal and external, we, we test ourselves and we, we grow. We, we become sharper as sentences. You know, we become more conscious, more capable, and that's something that then sticks with us for, you know, all lifetimes going forward, whether on Earth, elsewhere, this dimension, some other dimension. It's a, it's a form of treasure or investment that can never be taken away from you because you're always, you're, you're increasing yourself in terms of how close you are in similarity to the infinite creator. You know, because you might start out as a little tiny fragment, like a little piece of conscious dust, you know, in your far, far back history, but you eventually become a, a near infinite being. And the only way to get there is to actually grow your consciousness. And the only way to grow your consciousness is through experience and um, through, through kind of like what we talked about earlier, the whole uh, metacognition aspect of being able to transcend your own limitations by being aware of it. It takes consciousness to do that. And so we are on that threshold of having that level of consciousness to go even further, you know, even beyond the physical state. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's essentially what it comes down to, to for me. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I, uh, I love that because I've always, that's sort of the basis behind my show Truth Warrior is I come from the martial art world mm -hmm. and it's that idea of overcoming challenge and that it's uh, even in psychological terms, the idea of legitimate suffering, right? Legitimate suffering, meaning you're not uh, suffering needlessly or for some kind of sadomasochistic weird uh, thing, but it's that you're understanding that that gym analogy, when you go, you're ripping and tearing muscle to create stronger muscle fibers. So there's a suffering element to it that you're doing voluntarily because you know the benefit of that. Yeah. And then you read the books by so many survivors of, uh, you know, concentration camps or wars or, you know, horrible traumas. And for some reason, some of these writings are some of the most brilliant things we've ever seen. It's almost as if that's the catalyst for activating another level of genius or, or spectral thinking mm -hmm. is that experience. Now that's not to say we all are trying to seek it out for sure, but it's just life comes with a certain amount of suffering. And the, the, the stronger mentality, uh, in my opinion, is the one that doesn't just try to avoid that all the time and try to like, look what these governments are selling the world right now. 
uh, in exchange for freedom, we're going to make your lives easier. We're going to ease your suffering. We're going to make everything. We're going to protect your feelings. We're going to protect all these things. But you're giving up your humanity, your sovereignty, your own process by doing that. Um, and so I really like that explanation. The next question is this idea of the good guys and the bad guys. Uh, this is a huge debate. Um, it seems like every myth and legend or ancient scripture I've ever read, or even if you get into like the Marvel comics or any of these things, uh, they all have the sort of protagonist faction and the antagonist faction. Even having the ancient myths, a story of like Enlil and Enki, you have, uh, you know, uh, Horus and Set, Jesus and Satan. Like there's all these like duads where they're telling you in a mythological story something that seems to be embedded into our reality where there is this principle of good and evil and those that are trying to um, optimize and benefit humanity and, uh, and, and help us evolve and, and, and encourage freedom and all of these things. And then there's forces that are seeking dominance, control, you know, and all these sort of negative things. And we see this exhibited within the human species as well. There are people who are striving for good. They're trying to benefit uh, their lives in the world with what they're doing. And then there's others that are, you know, they're out there, they're serial killers, they're, they're, you know, bank robbers or whatever, they're politicians, you know, mm -hmm. uh, going to Epstein Island. So you go, all right, whoever we're dealing with here, uh, you have like the Stephen Greer uh, explanation where he says everything coming here is benevolent towards humanity and, and they'd have to be because they've they've built this advanced civilization and you can't get to an advanced civilization unless you're um, morally good or whatever. Uh, but then, of course, you know, I come from more of the other school where we live in just as much as we see the, that difference of the sort of good and evil in humanity. I see that continues throughout um, our universe and that we might have predatory forces here uh, that are, you know, some people call them lower dimensional or whatever, lower energetic consciousness. But no matter how you look at it, there's something predatory, something Maybe it's not even personal to them. Maybe they just look at it the way we treat animals on our own planet, and they're just like, "Yeah, you're a food source. You know, deal with it." Mm -hmm. But there is this uh, there is this level of evil in the world that almost seems anti-human, and it seems like humans mm -hmm. wouldn't be capable of planning it to that level or carrying it out to that level or doing that to their own species. Um, and so it, it brings that question up. So how do you look at, especially in relation to the sort of ET or interdimensional subject? this idea of are they all good are they all evil because then you go to the religious mind they think they're all evil and it's all just a big con right so mm -hmm. there's two extremes i sit in the middle where do you sit well i think that if you kind of try to classify the different uh, spectrum of different types of beings then you know, you've got humanity that's sort of in the middle uh and then at the very top you've got let's say you can call it the infinite creator god or whatever as the very top and then you've got the ultimate evil at the very bottom now, within this, like, humanity in the middle, God, you know, Satan, or the ultimate evil down at the bottom, um, above humans, at some point, that's what the religious people would call angels. You know, they're, they're between humans and God, and there's angels there. And then if you go lower, between the ultimate evil and humans are uh, demons. So you got mm -hmm. angels here, you got demons here. But what about the gap between angels and humans? And what about the gap between demons and humans? Yes. We, already, we, we already know that even within the human spectrum, there are some very good people, like like amazing good people. They, and then most of them go unrecognized. But they are, you know, they're spiritual, moral, intellectual heroes that that ensure that humanity isn't right now a total hell world. 
And likewise, you've got at the bottom part of that little human spectrum, you've got the, the negative corrupt elites who are up to some very sick stuff. You know, I mean, they're essentially demons in human bodies. And so that's what they are. And likewise, these good humans are essentially angels in human bodies. That's how they act, right? right? But there's still a missing gap above between angels and humans and between demons and, and humans. And I think that missing gap is filled by negative ETs down here. So negative aliens. And above it, what you would call, let's say, positive aliens. And then you've also got neutral aliens who are, you know, sort of in the middle, but off to the side somewhere. Because this is like a moral, like a moral vibrational spectrum. Um, now, the interesting thing about it, though, is that there's an objective. See, we're not just talking about um, moral qualifications here in terms of, oh, this fits my religion, so therefore it's good. Oh, it violates my religion, so it's bad. No, there's right. an actual, there's an objective quality to it, which children and pets can sense. Like a pet can sense wh whether a person is bad news or whether they're a really good person. That's so true. if yeah. you've got, you got a sensitive dog or, I mean, we used to have, okay, so we had a cat that was actually quite intuitive. And anytime we would have a man over, you know, whether it's a maintenance guy or a friend or a relative or someone, the cat would just be all over them. Well, one day uh, I had a friend who was sort of questionable and he was coming down the steps outside to come to our door. And as soon as like it got within a certain distance, our cat like noticed it and bolted to the back room and hid under the bed. And it turned, out, it turned out later on that this guy was, um, he wasn't all there and he seemed to have a very dark entity attachment to him, you know, whether some sort of ET thing or demonic or something. But our cat sensed it. And, and likewise, if you're psychic or if you're in an out-of-body state, you can tell whether an entity is relatively good or relatively evil by the type of energy or light that they emit. Um, and so, like, if you have, let's say, a guardian spirit or some sort of angelic being come in, it's going to be glowing white golden light. And whether, but then if it's like a demonic type being, it's going to be typically like black or dark brown or, you know, like, like dark glowing red with maybe red eyes or cold icy blue eyes, something like that. Um, and so these energies can be perceived in an objective way by our, I guess our subconscious, you know, is able to directly read what they actually are and assign a visual value to it, which we then see in our mind's eye as, oh, it's a glowing being or so it's a dark being. And so, you know, the, this is the scale from the ultimate good to the ultimate evil. There's an actual vibrational scale to it that is objective, right? It's not just uh, based on yeah. cult cultural norms. Yeah. Um, now, of course, cultural norms can synchronize with that to some degree, but it's not a one-to-one -one synchronization because there are things that are good that would be considered bad by religion and vice versa. Things that are considered good mm -hmm. by religion that are actually bad in an, in an objective sense. Um, so there, there's obviously both the negative and the positive. And it's, it's a, so it is a spectrum. Like it's a spectrum vibrationally, it's a spectrum morally, spectrum like consciously. So on these, all these different axes of um, dimensions regarding qualities of consciousness, there are beings all over that space, you know, from the good and sophisticated to the good and not sophisticated, and like, you know, bunnies, for example, bunnies, they're harmless for the most part. They just breed and they don't really bite even. So they're okay in the animal world. But then you've got like vipers and things, which they're not evil, but just the nature of them is consequentially harmful to us to have, to have them around. And so that is already the beginning. Even within the animal world, there's already the beginning of the polarization between more beneficial and more harmful. You know, Interesting. and by the time you get to the human level, now you've got saints and you've got psychopaths. And then beyond that, you've got the positive aliens and negative aliens, and then you've got angels and demons and, you know, the ultimate creator and uh, the ultimate evil. So that's sort of how I divide it up. I mean, that's a framework that I use, and it's worked for me so far. So until something better comes along, I'm not going to change it.
I've never, I've never heard it like that. I really, I really like that. It, it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, aside from getting into etymology of angels and demons and what that even mm -hmm. means, it's just good to have a concept of it. Um, that it's just these are there's basically layers and levels to this game, and there's this, there's spectrums of it. We see the spectrums as you're defining throughout nature, throughout different people, um, and. I think I like bringing this up too to people to remind them, especially when they get into despair about our time and the things that they're going on and the evil that is now being shown to the world. Uh, we live in a time, Tom, and I wonder what you think about this idea of an awakening process that's happening. Um, we live in a time where we as humans in our 3D world are being given access to information about what's really been going on that we were not aware of how this world really works, who the people are at the top of a lot of these institutions that we used to love, trust, and cherish that seem to have been taken over by something dark, something that is nefarious, something that is, uh, it's fake, it's inauthentic, it's an illusion, right? And we're seeing that and we're getting drips of information about all this, these pedophile networks and the Epstein Islands thing. And um, we're getting uh, information about even some of these whistleblowers coming out, talking more openly about this, paranormal ET subject. We've got um, information coming out about the corruption in our governments with our election systems. And I mean, I could sit here forever, the cor corporate corruption, the everything. And there's been always these predictions in various, uh, you know, whether they're talking the Aztecs or Book of Revelation or whatever, of a time called the apocalypse, where, you know, a lot of people always viewed that as being some kind of cataclysm, some kind of like end of the world scenario. And I mean, even movies are mm -hmm. deemed apocalyptic films like, you know, but really the word apocalyptic just meant the removal of a cover, the, the revealing of something, the end of something and the beginning of something new. So I feel like we're in an age of revealing or an age of awareness, an age of truth. Um, and people will all be having the choice in their personal lives to, to attach to it and be on to it and see what's going on. But there's many that seem to be moving the other way. That they're moving further into cognitive dissonance, further mm -hmm. into um, just the the delusion, right? So it's interesting, but I've never seen this many people um, being aware and talking openly about some of these subjects that people like you and I were talking about for decades, but nobody wanted to hear. And now I'm like talking about it with <laughs> my mother-in-law and some guy, mm -hmm. my mailman, and my and it's like everybody's kind of starting to get an idea about what's happening. Do you feel like there is? an awakening process happening? And if so, do you think that we are getting help from different layers of that, that, um, that structure you were breaking down? Like we might have human white hats and whistleblowers and people working on the inside of the system that have seen so much evil. They're now like, I'm coming out with this. And then there's maybe the next level where we're talking now, ET, interdimensional, spiritual, that's mm -hmm. also assisting. And that this battle, uh, we're kind of caught in the middle of a battle between all of these realms, and it's all happening right here uh, for us. It, it, how do you see the time and this idea of an awakening? No, you said it pretty well. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much in agreement with what you're saying. Now, one thing you'll notice, though, um, is that earlier when I mentioned how there's a, there's a censorship of what constitutes mass consensus reality, hmm. there's, a, there's a censorship over... Um, how much can be shown to the public at once and it's been it's been going on for probably 3000 years now cuz in the ancient ancient times like sumerians and even the old testament you had you had beings flying around and bombing cities and you know they're they're doing their thing openly 
and people were worshiping them openly. They had their temples and like, like um, each of the Sumerian cities was dedicated to a particular Sumerian god. And uh, these gods would actually show up their land and be given fruits and vegetables and food, which, you know, they would take up. Anyway, so, but so they were out in the open a long time ago, but then all of a sudden, you know, God stopped speaking to man. Like these, these beings kind of were, were they, they were either retreated or they uh, were told to retreat by some even more powerful force. And uh, I know several different sources that talk about this. Um, I got a friend of mine who's a contactee. He meant he was told this by his alien contacts and, uh, you know, some channeling material and some historical material. It all kind of lines up with the idea that right around 3000 years ago, something came in and put this place on a, uh, censorship lockdown in a way like where, a quarantine or something. yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. A quarantine is a good way to put it. Um, actually some of these sources called it a quarantine cause that's mm -hmm. what it is. And so what, what the rules of the quarantine were is that humanity, um, in terms of mass consensus had to be left alone. It had to, people had to be under the fiction that, you know, humanity, we're developing on our own and we're just, you know, we got our own human history and civilization and we're moving forward uh, without the open interference of these beings. But of course, these beings could still do it um, covertly. So sub rosa, they would call it. So, so covertly, they could still manipulate history from behind the scenes, but it had to look like humans were pulling their own weight. But of course we weren't. I mean, we're given technological tips and, um, insights to manipulate history. And I mean, William Bramley, for example, William Bramley, he wrote a book called Gods of Eden. One that's of my a, faves. Yeah, it's an awesome book because he went into it as a historian who didn't even know anything about aliens or UFOs or anything. And he just started digging into real archives of like old books and history. And over and over again, he would start noticing this pattern of this interference from non-human elements that were managing human history. So he wrote a book documenting everything that he knew about how human history was managed by these non-human beings. So that's a, that's a really good book. I mean, he came into it, like I said, objectively, and he, he detected that pattern, but it's a true pattern. And so here we are nowadays, 3,000 years later, and it seems to me like perhaps this quarantine is being lifted. It's being taken off. And so now the, and when you take that off, that is essentially the apocalypse the great revealing because now all the things that were suppressed are being allowed to start mm -hmm. to filter more and more into mass consciousness. Um, and of course there's no way that our governments and our military at the deepest black levels wouldn't be aware of this and right. wouldn't be working with it somehow. And so if that is coming, if a time is coming where there are certain inevitabilities like aliens coming out into the open, uh, or certain global cataclysms that are to happen, then militaries, governments would be positioning themselves right now and would be conditioning society right now to kind of lay the groundwork to be able to weather that, right? But here's the problem, though. The problem is that, that these governments or secret societies, they're not all on the same page. They're not all sharing the same agenda or the same vision for how they want to proceed through this. Some of, them, some of them are on that whole uh, great reset track. They see humanity as useless eaters as animals to manage. And so no wonder they're talking about um, locking us into buildings without windows and making us eat bugs. You know, you'll, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. That whole idea that that's their vision because that's what cows are. Cows own nothing and they're relatively happy until they go to the slaughterhouse. So yeah, good point. All right. So that's, that's how these, that particular faction of 
government insiders, you know, uh, secret society elites. That's how they view us. But I do think that there is another faction, um, at least another faction that might be smaller, might have less power, but they're still there. And they seem to have faith in humanity. Like they are, you could call them the humanists or um, I don't know, the, the relatively, relatively more positive side of things. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're all saints necessarily, but I think they have the right vision for humanity. And they have enough faith in us that they think that we can handle the truth and that we must handle the truth. And so, therefore, when we're talking about alien disclosure, for example, and there's been many things in the news lately that have been wrapping that up, what we're noticing um, is that both sides of this issue, um, both the one that sees us as useless animals and the ones that have faith in us, they're both pushing for disclosure and they're both kind of guiding us towards disclosure, but there's a subtle difference in how they're approaching it. One side is approaching it more from the viewpoint of how do we get humanity to... Um, not freak out or rebel when the aliens reveal themselves and how do we get them um, on their knees subservient you know wrapped up in a nice tidy bow to deliver to our alien overlords so that's one side and the other side is more like um how do we get humanity up to speed through knowledge and technology um, so that they can survive any cataclysms that are coming and also be able to pull together and resist this alien control that is going to be attempting to happen all right and so both of them are pushing towards disclosure. One is only pushing for partial disclosure, which is aliens are real. Yes, you know, they've been abducting people, but they're doing it for good scientific reasons. Maybe they want to save their own race, so they need some of our genetics to kind of improve their own genetics because they're emotionless grays and we are emotional humans. So maybe they want to take some of our genetics and make themselves a little bit more emotional so they can be happy and do art and, you know, be, be good, positive beings. And, you know, some sort of new age baloney like that. Um, and But then the other side, though, they're more like, Yes, aliens exist, and not all of them are good. And mm. some of them have killed military personnel. They've been interfering in things, and um, there have been rogue government factions that have made deals with the bad aliens. So that is also starting to come out now. Like uh, um, David uh, Grush, the whistleblower, he's he's all over the news now. Yeah, um, I can ask you about him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so he he was um he was an Air Force major, I believe, when he left left the uh, the military. But he filed two complaints with the Department of Defense, um, actually the uh, the Intelligence uh, Inspector General. He filed a complaint saying that, based on his experience with all the different other insiders that he talked to, there were governments, uh, off-the-books government special access programs that had crashed UFOs between 12 and 15 vehicles and ET bodies that they were reverse engineering and that they were lying about and keeping from Congress. So they're doing something totally illegal. You know, like this is rogue government military thing was doing something illegal. And he was complaining about that, saying that, yes, this exists and Congress needs to know about it. And I want to give Congress, you know, hundreds of pages of testimony and evidence saying that this is what's happening. And the Department of Defense took his complaint seriously and said that it was credible. And then even gave him permission to talk about the aspects of it that were not classified. So Congress was given the classified version of that. Whereas what we see in the news with the interviews that he did with, um, um, uh, I think it was Coolhard, the interviews that he did, that's only the declassified. That's like the watered-down version. And even that is pretty mind-blowing for the average person. Yeah, but, right, but that's an example of disclosure coming out. And I think, I think he would be more in the camp of full disclosure because he's already talking about things that people like Obama, Podesta, Hillary, Lawrence Rockefeller, Stephen Greer would never touch with a 10-foot pole. You know, they, mm. they, they're more in the camp of, you know, partial disclosure, let's make grays seem neutral or innocent and get humanity hooked up beneath them. Um, 
But then, but yeah, like I, I said, saw a clip. Of, I saw a clip of Greer on Twitter complaining about uh, David uh, Grush, and he was like, "Yeah, well, everything he was saying is true, but he keeps going on all these like negative aliens and, and invasions and what." So it's like he he. But that's just him with his narrative, right? And mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's amazing to see it. But um, one of the biggest concerns that happens in sort of the truth movement here is that people are concerned that this recent whistleblower and all of this stuff is just a big distraction. It's it's Project Bluebeam. It's all of that. And we, we've heard about this thing for a while. I actually mm -hmm. did a little uh, thread bringing a piece of an interview I did with Richard Dolan on this. And a lot of people don't know Richard Dolan about 15 years ago wrote a paper uh, basically going into the nuts and bolts of Bluebeam, where it originated. Turns out it came from one uh, evangelical pastor from Quebec, Canada, uh, back in the 90s. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. Monast, I believe his last name was. And he was the first one to call it that and bring out the theory of Project Bluebeam. And then the second point of reference we had for that was the testimony from 2001 Disclosure Project by um, that woman, I always forget her name, who was talking about her discussions with Werner von Braun about mm -hmm. the three stages of deception to try to achieve the new world order. So this is where most people go because, and to them, I understand they don't trust the government. They don't trust what's going on. They're just like, I don't trust anything you guys are telling me. You're just trying to distract me from other issues. And oh, let's bring in the aliens. Like that's kind of the vibe. Right. But I sit back and I go, hold on a second. Don't just throw it all away. There might actually be something legitimate here. Let's pay attention. Let's look at both sides. Because um, I've always been an advocate that the truth needs to come out. You know, uh, I was with Bob Dean on that one. I spoke to Paul Hellier and many other guys about this. And I, I know there was something real to it. But we're always concerned that they're going to give us a bunch of bullshit. And I love how you just broke that down, that there's really a few factions that are actually both trying to get real disclosure out there. But one is wanting to manipulate it and obscure the full story of it. And the other seems to be pushing for like, no, no, we need the whole enchilada on the table for people, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, so Stephen Greer, you brought up his viewpoint is that all aliens are good. And yeah. that any reports of negative aliens, it's essentially just the uh, the deep black military staging false abductions and staging, you know, f the illusion of negative aliens to the point of even uh, genetically engineering or breed breeding these uh, so-called programmable life forms, which are like artificial, synthetic, bi biological beings that look like reptilians or look like greys, but they're just there to create like negative alien abductions to kind of make humanity reject the good aliens wholesale mm -hmm. so that the deep blacks um, elements, the deep state can maintain its grip over humanity. That's his viewpoint. And the thing is, he's had that viewpoint for decades now. And no matter what anyone says, no matter what evidence comes out, he refuses to look at it. And he always just sticks to this one line. And typically that's, I mean, that, that is the, the characteristic of a disinformation agent to, to always stick to one viewpoint, to never deviate, mm -hmm. to reject all data. So I don't, I don't trust him on that. I mean, he's done great stuff with the disclosure project and getting whistleblowers to come forward. So the data he provides is good, but his, I mean, that's the cheese of the mousetrap. So the cheese is fine. The mousetrap is bad. So I just kind of throw away the mousetrap and I appreciate him for the data he provides, but not his final viewpoint. I mean, it just doesn't square with reality. It doesn't square with my experiences or thousands of people that, I, that I've interacted with. Now, it's important, however, to remember that the idea of a, a malevolent ET, you know, when we talk about, oh, some NHIs, non-human entities or intelligences are negative or malevolent, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are violent and scary doesn't mean that they've gone around killing people and you know tearing them up like some sort of Hollywood monster like alien right it doesn't have to be that because they can be beautiful they can be sociable they can make you feel great but 
They stroke your ego, they feed you lies, and they lure you into a trap. I mean, if you think about it, even amongst humans, con artists, right? Con artists aren't like, like oogity boogity, right? They're like charming, you know, sometimes beautiful people. And, uh, but they'll take all your money. They'll, they'll clean out your bank account because they know how to do that. And I, hey, think some... hey, Tom, I live in Canada. We're ruled mm. over by uh, our, our, our con, Justin Trudeau, who mm. gets all of those characteristics. So I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Castro had good genetics, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but you know, when it comes to whatever, whatever ETs decide to come out and show themselves to the world, they're not going to be, well, I'm, I guess they could be blowing things up and acting all scary. And in that case, then it would be a false flag on their behalf of portraying themselves as bad cops so that they can have another of their own faction come in as good cop. An easy way to do that would be to get, let's say, the Greys or the Reptilians to be the bad cop. And then the beautiful, you know, blonde Nordics have them be the good cop. Because as we have been conditioned in culture, um, there's this, there's this, uh, this trope that... You know, blonde hair, blue eyes, fair skin, that's like godly or noble or something. And so that's kind of imprinted into our collective unconscious. And I'm sure that they would capitalize on that to make us go googly-eyed over things so that, you know, these con artists can then take over our world uh, non-violently. You know, do it just through diplomacy, deception, um, social pressure, even telepathic pressure. So that's what we have to watch for. We don't have to necessarily worry too much about violent, scary aliens. We have to worry about the ones that, that look like angels, you know, but, but are not. And, and even cheap clothing, right? Yeah, exactly. And and even more if there are multiple of those types, some of them more positive and some of them more negative, because that's going to be confusing for people. It's like, oh shoot, you know, mm. I thought, okay, I finally figured out that these Nordic types, they're very deceptive. But what if there are people that look like them? I mean, perhaps they are time travelers or who knows what, that are actually looking out for our best interests because it benefits them too. Um, but they look the same, so it's going to be mass confusion about who to trust. And so I think that's why it's so important to get some of this um, information out now. And that's why I wrote my book, Discerning Alien Disinformation. Uh, it's free on my website. I wrote it. Oh, really? But it's also on Amazon, too, if you want to pick it up for cheap. But yeah, it's got, um, it, it gets into the four different main alien types that are most commonly reported. It's not the only alien types, but it's the most commonly reported ones. The Greys, Mantids, Reptilians, and Nordics. Um, what's typically known about them, and most essentially in the last chapter, I get into how to differentiate between the positive ones, if, if they exist, or the ones pretending to be positive. You know, there's very subtle nuances. So I give like a whole like list of criteria that you can use to distinguish between the two. So it's a good book to have on hand and hard copy if that day ever comes. You know, it might give you some ideas about separating the, the noise from the signal when it comes to that. Oh, I love it. I'm going to link it up and I'm going to check it out myself. Um, what if these Klaus Schwab mofos and some of these guys mm. aren't at all what we think they are like what you start to wonder like um there's the old uh who was it I, I spoke to three people over my research career that really stunned me it was sort of off the cuff off air sort of discussions one was paul hellier mm -hmm. uh one was bob dean before he passed and one um jordan maxwell and had these conversations and they jordan maxwell always had that saying uh where he would say well it's not that like somehow flaws them they look like them because he's going back to the idea that you know um we are a hybrid species right mm -hmm. humanity um then you had uh paul hellier who spoke very freely you know to me on a few occasions about how he's like yeah they're already walking amongst us and this is known by governments in the world and uh they can sit right beside you look look at the, into the camera talk to you and 
it's because they are also humanoid. Many of these races are also humanoid. In fact, uh, human species is not just seeded on this planet. We're sort of like the babies uh, in the country of the galaxy. There, there's humanity, human, human DNA in various altered forms is seeded throughout our entire galaxy, if not universe. And so some of these beings are us, uh, are a part of us, which is why they may be driven to um, assist us. But then there's those ones that look kind of like us, but um, just as we see certain factions of humans that will turn into psychopaths like a Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever, uh, you know, they, they would also be possibly malevolent. And then there's these other ones that don't look like us at all. Um, and so, and then the other one, yeah, was Bob Dean. He said they could, they're the tall whites, he used to call them. This, mm -hmm. this is the Nordics, right? They're walking up and down the halls of the Pentagon and nobody even notices because we don't understand what kind of a reality we inhabit. And it's far more than anybody can imagine. And, and the worldview that we all have, that we're just these, uh, we're the only ones here, we're the apex of creation. They're like, mm -hmm. that's just smoke and mirrors. So um, I think that's kind of what, what you're hinting at here is that uh, we could be dealing with something that very much looks a lot like us, but there's a reason why they're operating with almost like an AI-like consciousness. That even breeds the AI theory that this is um, these are artificially intelligent, generated beings that don't have a soul, uh, like you said, and yet they can talk and move and act and appear just like us. But the reason they're operating with this sort of psychopathic mindset is that in the end, they're actually not us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it, I mean, it's known amongst the ufology community and amongst abductees that these aliens, they fall into an internal hierarchy of sorts. Like you got the greys sort of at the bottom and you got the reptilians above that, then maybe the Nordics, and then you got these mantis, the mantis, like praying mantis type aliens, pretty much near the top. And the praying mantis ones, they, they seem to be ultra terrestrial in the sense that their natural form is more of a like a like a like an energy plasmatic cloud form sort of like like a nebula form um, but they can materialize as these mantis beings and they have immense immense telekinetic telepathic powers and that's why they're at the top of their hierarchy and the ones that are the least telepathic are at the bottom which would be grays or actually below the grays would be human human gray hybrids you know they're kind of like the 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 uh, undesirable class the, the caste system uh, at the very bottom but if these aliens ever try to show up and take over the planet, then they would make these ET human hybrids be the elites over us because they see us as like vermin, essentially. So so even as low as the hybrids are in their hierarchy, it's going to be above us. And then so so it's a way of for them to interface these ultra terrestrial mantis type beings with humanity down at the bottom through successive layers of increasing levels of intelligence and psychic power. And that's sort of how they want to structure uh, the, the takeover. Um, but you're, you're totally right that that it's we that look like them more so than they who look like us because they are, I mean, they have DNA, you know, and, and there's been cases where the DNA has actually been recovered from some of these beings. Uh, Peter Curry, uh, K-H-O-U-R-Y, he's a Le Lebanese guy. He had an encounter with a Nordic looking woman and a more like Asian dark haired type looking woman. Um, but he recovered some of the hair from this blonde alien and had it genetically analyzed. And what they found was that the root of the hair had a g different genetic profile than the shaft of the hair. So one of them was this rare Asian type from some rare Asian genetic tribe, some obscure tribe in Asia somewhere. And uh, the other one was a combination of Basque and uh, Gaelic, like Celtic, essentially. 
So whatever this being was, it was, uh, I guess you would call it a biological chimera or chimera, however you pronounce that word. Um, in a sense of it's like two different genetics that are kind of combined together, but not really fused at a genetic level, but more like smushed together at a biological level. So it was, it was an artificial being that he was dealing with. Um, not to say that all Nordics are that, but the, that one that he was dealing with was that. So which goes to show that one, um, these things are biological. Uh, two, they have been genetically engineered at a very masterful level. And so therefore, if you look at that and what these things are capable of, and then if you look at human history, uh, our own genetics, and how we differ from a lot of these other great apes, you know, the chimps and the bonobos and stuff, and the fact that we've got only 46 chromosomes while they've got 48 chromosomes. And the reason that is, is because four of the great ape chromosomes, they fused into two and two. So now we've got 46, you know, instead of 48. And if you look at the actual fusion sites of how that happened, there's no way that that can happen naturally. It had to be artificial. And that happened uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago. So I think, I think planet Earth has been a, a genetic petri dish for a very, very long time. And that we, nowadays, are the products of a huge number of different genetic modifications over the eons. You know, um, I mean, even before like modern, modern, modern humans, which is us now, there were the Cro-Magnets, they call them early modern humans. And these Cro-Magnets, they were taller, they were healthier, they had bigger brain capacities, you know, so they're probably smarter. Uh, they're more robust, they're better humans. And then something happened uh, during a time of cataclysm where, in addition to the cataclysm, it seems like their genetics were altered even more to turn them into what we are here nowadays. Not psychic, not that intelligent. We've only, we only live to be 70 or 80 years old on average, you know, at best, while these things probably lived a couple hundred years. So we've been dumbed down genetically even just uh, 12 to 40,000 years ago to be what we are now. So, you know, we're, we're quite, um, we're, we're definitely crippleware, you know, in terms of software. Uh, lingo where we're crippleware well and uh, you got guys like um you know of alex collier the mm -hmm. contactee yep. i keep trying to reach him to get him on to talk pick his brain but uh he was somebody that had some very interesting stuff back in the day and he described humans as genetic royalty he said one of the reasons is because we're such a mix of different uh races and different types of genetics that has produced this unique balancing point between these different species that this is why we're such a prize this is why we're kind of like we were bred almost like the angus cow or something like mm. to be this perfect source for something uh whereas and it doesn't mean we were only bred for that because he talks about the positive factions as well that we're trying to um you know help move along the process of evolution or whatever but then there were those that were looking at us again, like a bunch of farm animals that are used as a resource for some reason. And it could mm -hmm. be even this idea of louche or energy uh, vampirism that, you know, people talk about. Um, it's not just what Sitchin imagined with just, oh, they're here for the gold or whatever, uh, or the minerals. You know, maybe that was just a bonus, but that the real mm -hmm. prize was the genetics. The real prize was the process of playing God and creating uh, something. And in that process, there's sort of a mixed bag that's going on behind it. But it's fascinating to think about and as as out far out of the box as this might be for some people just imagine like if even a single aspect of this whole story about uh what we've been talking about turns out to be true what does that open up what mm -hmm. what possibilities open up for what else could be true and if they're starting to get to the point where they're openly wanting to disclose valid information to the human population about this issue uh be it for good or ill or a mix of both what's that going to do to this world and so maybe final question for you tom is what does a post truth disclosure world look like 
And when I say disclosure, I'm not just talking about the ET presence or, or whatever is going on. I'm talking about the whole kit and caboodle, all of these things, all of the things that have been hidden from us that are starting to come out. Uh, what do you think that post-disclosure world looks like to you? Yeah, well, I think for starters, it's important to, to know that so much of the future depends on exposing the hidden forces that are playing us against each other. Mm. You know, that, that divide and manipulate and suppress us without our awareness. So what we, what we really need then is we need knowledge and that, that can only come through full disclosure. It can't come through partial disclosure. It has to come through full disclosure. Uh, so we need, we need knowledge. We need, um, more importantly, we need perception more so than knowledge. Because knowledge is kind of retroactive. You know, you learn something and then that's it. Whereas perception is always opening you up to new knowledge. So we need to expand our perception somehow. And I'm here I'm talking about psychic powers. Because a lot of these things, they, you can have a cloaked UFO, a cloaked alien ship in the sky um, that you can't see. So therefore you live your life as if the world is just what consensus reality says it is. But if you're able to see it, then you wouldn't, pay attention to, to stupid drama all the time because you know that there's a bigger reality, right? So we need to expand our perception. And if not perception, then at the very minimum, we need new technologies that use a new kind of physics that can detect these things, that can detect ghosts, that can detect demons, that can detect um, when someone is being possessed by some nefarious entity and they don't even know it. If you had technology that could, let's say, scan their aura and you can get like a spectrum readout, and you can say, oh, that little peak there, he's got a demonic presence in him. Let's get him into the, the subtle energy hospital to remove this entity. And then this person comes out fine and he's, you know, he, he's a loving person again. That's the sort of thing we need. Cause like right now it's almost like we're back in the dark ages before the knowledge of bacteria, before the existence of microscopes and antibiotics. That's what we are right now on a subtle energy level. There's so many things that are manipulating us, contaminating us, infecting us uh, on an energetic level that people don't know that it's, it's easy for people to start hating humanity and saying, oh, humans suck, you know, I hope that we all get wiped out in some catastrophe. Well, it's right. because you're, you're blaming humans for what's not truly their cause. They are the end result of it, but they're not the ones that are actually causing it. I mean, there are non-human forces and psychopathic forces that, are, that have set up culture from the time you're born to program you to be divisive, to, to hate yourself and hate others and hate humanity and kind of assist them in the exploitation of humanity. So that needs to end, and it can only end through truth and through disclosure. And essentially, you know, we need something that can unmask the psychopaths and sociopaths among us, whether both human and non-human, because it is they who cause the most amount of damage, you know, that hold us back the most. I've known families where they didn't have those elements in them, and they do great. The kids turn out awesome, like really good, well-developed people. I mean, okay, maybe maybe a little soft, but you know, because they haven't been hardened by the suffering, but... They're just so much healthier in terms of spiritual balance and creativity, success in life, and not holding themselves back through limiting beliefs that have been installed there through trauma, you know, and alienation and, and suffering and so on. So we, if we talk about a, a post-truth society, what that would look like, a post-disclosure society, in the end, if we make it through, it'll be just like that, where you've gotten rid of all these hidden factors that have held us down for so long, more than necessary, because earlier you talked about um, necessary suffering, Right. You know, right. Necessary. That yeah. 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 And and I th and I think that our world um, fundamentally is was set up was designed for that for necessary suffering and also for the benefits of creativity and joy and love and you know all those positive things. But the problem is, 
whether it's the non-playable characters here or whether it is sentient beings that decided, hey, you know, this place is pretty comfy. Let's make ourselves a kings and exploit everyone else as animals. Whether it's one or the other, they decided to make to to maximize unnecessary suffering. You know, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just like it's like just like with consumerism, where there are products that you definitely need. I mean, you need food, you need water, you need communication. But then what do these corporations need? They need to maximize their profits to to make the investors happy. And so they try to maximize demand where it shouldn't naturally even exist. Right. And so if you think about that in terms of metaphysics, how it, how it looks like on a metaphysical level, well, it, they're trying to maximize the, the, the need. You know, you could say the need for suffering or for karma that doesn't actually need to be. It's unnecessary. And they do that through deception. They do that by having uh, possessed people positioned throughout society to maximize suffering, whether it's in your own family, uh, company, you know, state government, whatever. They're, they're, these things installed in the key places of power, they can, they, they act as wrenches in the, as wrenches in the, in the gears of this whole matrix and, and kind of, kind of grinding that system to a halt almost so that we're here needlessly suffering when we shouldn't be and therefore prolonging the amount of loose energy that they can collect you know, or the amount of control that they can exert over the spirit. Um, so we need to put a stop to that for sure. And I think that'll definitely happen through full disclosure, not just of aliens, but of existence itself, you know, the nature of consciousness, the nature of reality. And so that's why some of the um, technological trends I think they'll cut both ways, like artificial intelligence, for example. Yes, it has the, it has totally has the ability to to turn us into like the matrix, literally, like machines having humans in these pods fed virtual reality and feeding off their energy or whatever. It could happen. On the other hand, artificial intelligence is also a threat to the alien agenda because, for example, you can use AI to um, gather all data, analyze all data to detect what they're up to. You, know, you can hook it up to sensors so you can tell exactly where they are in the sky and what they're doing and you can analyze social stuff you can you can ask ai to come up with a plan on how to defeat the alien agenda for example and you know it'll, it'll collect all information and process it i mean not right now but i'm saying in the future when it gets better right. you can do that so so it's i mean i think they see it as a threat but they also see it as an opportunity to get us to lock ourselves down even more um yes, or things it's like a double-edged sword that eh? yeah no totally i mean all these technological singularities that are coming up are double-edged swords and that includes genetic uh, genetic um, science, because you can you can do um, archaeology or even um, uh, like like you know like the SETI program scans the sky looking for signs of life kind of ignorantly because aliens are here, but you can you can do like a SETI into genetics itself. You can look at the human genome and you can start exploring okay human origins, um, where has our genome been edited for what purpose, and what is our true potential? How how to unlock? You know, maybe like remove some of the software locks in our genome so that we do become psychic and we can see these entities and genetics will most definitely lead to that on the other hand it can also lead to uh, i don't know the, the breeding of different casts of humans so that humanity itself becomes just like you know you got the grays and you got the whatever 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 these, these different different tiers for different purposes humanity could be bred into that if we're not careful so yeah i mean these are double-edged swords and um that's how it is with knowledge and technology they don't guarantee good or evil all they guarantee is uh you having a more potent ability to choose and to act on those choices so if we do disclosure in the correct way full way responsibly uh we're going to be a, ut a utopian planet for sure wow incredible incredible stuff tom man like 
I could talk to you for hours. We'll, we'll have to do this again sometime. Um, so many great points, so many things to think about, even for me, like just trying to structure my own thinking or get these different definitions. You did such a good job explaining the whole interdimensional thing and that language. When you're talking on that level, uh, I, I'm with you. Um, I feel like sometimes people just maybe aren't as good at explaining it or, um, you know, whatever. But so you did a really good job and I'm excited to see how things unfold. I, I think we're going to get more. I feel like we're getting drip feeds of information uh, to give humanity more of a choice as mm -hmm. to what kind of a world and a future we're going to create. It's ultimately up to us. I don't believe in psychological determinism. I don't believe that it's all faded. I believe those momentous occasions that rise up that if the awareness is there, if the desire is there, and if the knowledge and the truth is there, then the potential can be achieved. Otherwise, we've got to wait for the next wave. Uh, and I'm just rooting that humanity catches this one before these guys catch their wave to create this dystopian nightmarish future that they want. Um, and I hope we can get off the farm. And uh, one way I, I look at it is I'm I think humanity should start to get sick of taking the yellow belt lessons over and over again. We want the black belt lessons now. We want to get to the next level of this of this uh, expansive experience. And uh, it, it, something has been holding us back and keeping us on pause of what our potential is. And so if each individual out there starts to act within the realm of finding their own inner potential and their own meaning in life and uh, developing themselves into the type of person that they want to be, and it's that whole be the change you want to see mindset. If we do that and we start building superior models like the Buckminster Fuller concept of building a superior system that just makes the old corrupt, decaying one obsolete. If we start finding, and I see people gravitating towards that, um, and I, I think that's a positive direction. So I don't want people to feel like they're just going to sit here and hold the popcorn and watch it happen. We, we can be a part of this change. We can be a part of disclosure. I mean, the first act of disclosure is not going to come from the president of the United States walking out and telling you all this stuff. It's you, like what you did, Tom. You went and did the research. You've made disclosure happen for yourself. And I've done that to my best ability and everybody listening. And we're all trying to look at all these ideas and theories and try to find the truth and just stay on that path. And I think that in the end, the truth is going to win out. And um, I'm praying that humanity wins out as well. So uh, such a good breath of fresh air, Tom. You're really, really good. I want people to go check out your site, Montauk.net. Go check out the book, support them, buy it on Amazon. And uh, Tom, like I said, let's, let's catch up again soon on this, okay? All right. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'll catch you next time. Stay frosty. Cheers.